Well, I'm not completely sure, but if I brought out my wallet and asked how many other people have uh, a driver's license like mine where it says class, how many other people have a D and an M there where it says class on your driver's license? Well, you don't have to check, but... Well, okay, the two people I think have it are Bob and Larry <laughs> because the M stands for motorcycle, right? Do you have that on your license? Yeah, I What's his D stand for? I think... Driver, I don't know, driver. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I have the D. Okay, so two people in this room I think have the M, well, three if you include me, and the way I got that M on my license is that I um, went through a course back in summer 2008 where we learned a bunch of stuff from a book, and then we did uh, a, a drive, we did practicing on a motorcycle, and then we had a test at the end of it, a road test, and you had to pass this written test, you had to pass this road test in order to get this M on your driver's license that allows you to drive a motorcycle legally. I guess you could drive it illegally, but um, every year I have to renew my license. Not every year, but every time I have to renew my license, I have to take the written test again. And so like five years ago, I passed it in one try. But this year, this past fall, I tried to pass it, and they let you have three times while you're there at that appointment and I failed the written test three times. And then I was like, okay, because um, it's been since 2008, well, maybe 2009 since I've ridden, rode a motorcycle. So it's kind of like just don't remember all that stuff. And then uh, so they're like, I said, okay, can I just, I'll just come back another time. They said, oh, no, if you renew your license without getting the M on it, you're going to have to retake the road test and stuff. And so I was like, okay. So they gave me this little book. I took it home. I you know, went studied it for about an hour, underlining the key things and then went back and passed the test for the first time. But for me, I'm kind of like, well, if Larry or Bob brought their motorcycle one Sunday, and they're like, Mitch, take it for a spin. You have a motorcycle license. I would be a little hesitant because it's been since, like I said, 2008, 2009, since I've driven a motorcycle. So that's, what, 13 years? And so there's kind of, and I hadn't ridden one very long after I got my license. There's only maybe like, two weeks I was riding it and then I got in an accident and then it got repaired and I maybe went two more times. So it's not like I'd be getting on a bike that I rode for 10 years and it's like, oh, you know, it just comes back to me. And so I'd be a little hesitant, if, especially they both had motorcycles that are different from the model I had. So I'd be like, I passed this written test, which is show, kind of telling me you have this knowledge in your head to be able to answer the right questions on this. But honestly, any of you could have taken that book and studied for an hour and then gone and taken the test you know, the written test without taking the road test and have an M on your little license. Um, and so it's kind of like, what, am I really qualified to drive a motorcycle at this point? Would that be a safe and wise thing to do, not only for me or for other people on the road? Because it's like, well, it's been a while. And that stuff wasn't just automatically in me, like, oh, yeah, this is what you do. This is how you pass it. Uh, this is how you, you know, do these things on the road. And the point of a test is to see what is inside someone, a, a test reveals what is inside this. What, what do you know? What are you able to do? And the combination of the, to get your motorcycle license initially is you have your head knowledge of what you know, but then you're also testing of what you can do. Can you stop you know, in a 10-foot you know, span on, on a line? Can you turn a corner? Can you weave through these um, cones? And it's like, okay, am I able to do both those things? And it would show what's inside of, of me. And it's kind of like a situation that puts us um, almost kind of like under stress or uh, difficulty. Like you have this challenge, and this challenge is going to test what is in you, what you're able to do. And testing is a big theme in the Bible. We're going to get into that today. And Brian kind of hit on that when he spoke on Lent uh, three weeks ago. 
And we're in this season of Lent in the church calendar, which lasts six and a half weeks. And about halfway, and we're about halfway through it now. It began on March 2nd, Ash Wednesday, goes until Easter Sunday. And what happens during Lent, it's a time of confessing and mourning over our sin. And as we go through it, we come right to the foot of the cross where it's like, I've been confessing and mourning my sin and seeing ways I fall short of God's glory. And now I come to the cross and I say, you know, thank you, Jesus, for taking this for me. But you may wonder, okay, well, why Lent? Do we find Lent in the Bible? The answer is no. Did Jesus command it? The answer is no. Are we required to practice Lent? And the answer is no. And so why are we doing it? Well, there's, I thought of three reasons that makes, uh, shows why it's a good idea. First, it builds unity. Every um, Christmas time, we go through a season of Advent leading up to Christ's death, and we decorate, our towns decorate, people decorate their houses, we usually decorate differently here, and we lead up to this Christmas Eve service where it's like, this is when Jesus, uh, the Son of God, took on flesh and came into our world to die for our sins. And so, this is a, just like Advent, this is something we're going through together, it builds unity, and this is the second year we've focused on, or I've suggested fasting during Lent, of giving something up during Lent, and we talked about that um, at the last sermon I preached before Ezra was born. And we often give up something in order to return to God with all of our heart. And so we fast together. We lead, focus on Jesus' cross and his resurrection together. And so it builds unity. And while Lent is not in the Bible, the Old Testament does show us the value of God's people doing the same thing all together. Like we're all participating in this feast together. We're all going up to Jerusalem together. And so this gives us a time of year where it's like we're focusing on something together. So it builds unity. And second, it builds anticipation. We prepare ourselves for Jesus' atoning death and victorious resurrection on Good Friday and Easter, which constitute the only ground for our salvation. So just like Christmas time, it's like, Katie, if you had your way, wasn't it like October you would start playing Christmas music? Before Halloween? November 1st. November 1st. So Halloween gets its time, and then November 1st. And Katie gets really excited. It's a way to build anticipation. So we're listening to the music, decorating our houses, and, you know, the radio stations seems like earlier and earlier they start playing music, but it's us anticipating and building up to something. And so that's what Lent can do for us, is that we are building up and anticipating Jesus' death for our sins and his resurrection to be our king, who is alive and seated at God's right hand now. And third, it deepens our surrender. We are reminded once again, without Jesus, we have no hope. Without Jesus, we are lost, we're condemned, we're found guilty in God's law court. And in, during Lent, we remember that we are sinful beyond our fully knowing of it. And we bring that, and with that recognition, we lead up to the cross and we say, Jesus, once again, yes, take all of my sin. There's more here than I will ever know. I see more today than I did yesterday, than I did last year, and I'm going to keep seeing more of it. I'm bringing it to you so we would increase our gratitude and our joy. And so during Lent, we are experiencing something together as the body of Christ. And I probably wouldn't normally preach another message on Lent now that we're halfway through it, but as things turned out in the books we're studying, there's kind of like a free Sunday. So here we are, mid-Lent, doing another message. And I thought Brian did a great job on February 27th talking to us about uh, how God will bring us into wilderness experiences where we kind of hit the our limits, like the end of ourselves, like I, I, where we come into situations where I just don't know if I can do this. Maybe we get sick or maybe something 
happens to a loved one, or maybe we lose a job, or we lose a bunch of money, you know, whatever it is, we come into situations where it's like, I feel like I'm at my limits. I just cannot handle this on my own. And in those times, we then turn to God in trust and dependence. And in a way, I'm connecting with Brian's message. He talked about the wilderness. And we're going to look at Jesus' time in the wilderness and the temptation he faced in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And I just find this one of those fascinating passages that every time I go back to it, I just see more things. It feels like every time I'm in it, it's like I see things that are helpful to me, that God's saying to me, but every time I go back to it, it's like, oh, I kind of like went a level deeper. I saw another angle of it. And I've preached this passage two times, and I'm preaching it different today. <laughs> than you guys have probably heard me preach it two times, because you know, we just have come to it, and it's worked out for other things in other series we've done. And I'm doing it a third time, and it's going to sound different today than it did those other two times, because I just feel like there's just more there than we can really get at in one sitting. And what I was seeing in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, is there's this unifying theme through these three temptations that the devil takes Jesus through, of getting, trying to get him to avoid suffering, trying to get him to avoid pain, trying to get him to avoid discomfort. And in those moments of trying to get him to avoid that, really the question is, who are you going to trust? And if you're, whether you're in the pain or in the suffering, or whether you see it coming, who are you going to trust in the midst of that? In whom are you going to place your faith? In whom are you going to place your hope? Who are you going to love above all else? Who are you going to turn to in that time? And so the first temptation he gives, uh, we'll read the first couple verses here of chapter 4, verses 1 through four, 3 to see the first temptation. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, Command this stone to become bread. And we'll read verse 4 too. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And so Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness, there's not much to eat. He's hungry. He's been fasting from food. And he's, so he's hungry. He has the pain of hunger. He's uh, volunteered himself. He has um, chosen out of his own will to go into this situation of you know, suffering where he... He's in a wilderness with no food. He's hungry. He's been fasting. And what happens is the devil comes to him and says, If you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. In other words, satisfy your hunger. You don't need to be out here suffering like this. Like you can, you, You're hungry. Ask that stone to become bread. And what happens is Jesus quotes from a passage in De the book of Deuteronomy. He says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And if we continued that whole sentence... It's man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the context of what it's referring to is when Israel actually was wandering in the desert for 40 years. Jesus is in the wilderness, the desert for 40 days. Israel was in the desert for 40 years after God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt, taken them out, and then they were very disobedient. They weren't relying on God. They were turning to other things. They weren't trusting God. And so God says, okay, this generation... You can't enter the promised land. You forfeited that privilege. And so you're going to wander in the desert for 40 years. And yet God still took care of them. And so one of the ways he took care of them was there's this thing uh, called manna that he sent them. And really the literal Hebrew word of manna means what is it? Because they were like, what is this? This is kind of like white stuff on the ground. They would collect it and it was, they would use it. It was used for bread. And so uh, Israel 
they had only gave him, but God only gave enough for that day. So every day they woke up, there'd be the manna on the ground, and you could eat it for that day. And any that they would try to collect and like store up for themselves would just rot. It would not last till the next day. And so what happens is, God's saying, you don't rely on bread for your provision, for you to survive. You're relying on me. I said it would come every day. You don't need to pick up enough to store for the next day. You need to live on my word alone. I've told you it's coming. You need to trust me. You don't live on this bread. You live on what I have said. And so every day, they had to rely. God said he would provide it. And so tomorrow morning when I wake up, I will have what I need. And it's interesting that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught his disciples to say, give us our daily bread, that we rely on God to provide us each day with what we need. And so Jesus here, the devil says, turn this bread, or turn this rock into bread. And he says, no, no, it's not about food. I'm relying on God in this situation. I'm trusting in God, on God in this situation. The devil's saying, rely on yourself. Just get out of this situation. He's like, no, I'm going to rely on God. And so you can see, avoiding suffering. Get out of this hunger pain. Rely on yourself. It's who are you going to trust? That's the theme of the first temptation. The second temptation starts in verse 5. It says, And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, him only shall you serve. So the second temptation, Jesus, we know, ends in a place of glory and all authority. Matthew 28, 18-20, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And he's now seated at God's right hand, ruling over the universe, on God's behalf, submitting all things under his feet, and then he's going to deliver it to God, his Father. And so Jesus, the way, where his story ends, actually where it began, is in heaven with God the Father, he was with God, and he was God. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He has all the glory, and he takes on human flesh to come here to, die, to be able to die in our place. And then he's resurrected, and then sits at God's right hand, all authority and glory uh, given back to him. But the devil is saying, listen, you just kneel down before me. I'll give you all that authority and glory back. And really what Jesus knows, he, he, Jesus tells us, he says, I have come... Uh, to give my life as a ransom for many. So Jesus knows what is ahead of him. He knows the cross is before him. He knows dying in our place for our sins is ahead of him. But what the devil offers him is, you can have a crossless kingdom. You, can, you don't have to go through the cross to get to the throne. You can, I'll give it to you right now. You don't have to go through that suffering. You don't have to go through that death. You don't have to have uh, stand in these sinners' places. You don't have to be rejected and ridiculed and mocked and hung naked and ashamed on a cross. You can have it right now, just bow to me, and be done with all this cross stuff. So it's a crossless kingship and a crossless kingdom. And what he's saying is, don't trust in God's plan. Kneel down and serve me. Worship me. So who are you going to trust? Whose plan are you going to trust? Whose way are you going to trust? And the devil's saying, we can come up with a better way to get this authority and glory thing done for you. Like, let's just skip the cross, bow to me, and it'll be done. But Jesus says, No, you shall worship the Lord your God. Him only shall you serve. That's who he's going to worship. That's who he's going to trust in. That's who he's going to submit to. And the third temptation begins in verse 9. It says, And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, 
He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So the third temptation is really testing God's character. Can God be trusted? Okay, you're the Son of God, so you believe God's your Father, and you've just, in these other two temptations, he said, No, I'm going to trust God. So it's kind of like, Okay, you think he's so trustworthy. Well, let's put that to the test. Let's test it out. Jump off of this. Scripture says he's going to protect you. Scripture says he's going to protect his people. He's going to protect his children. So jump off and test out how trustworthy he is. And Jesus says, no, no, I will not put God to the test. He doesn't need to have his, need to have his character trusted. I trust that he's going to do what is good and right and, and what is best. And so in all three of these, it's who will you trust? And it's about avoiding suffering. And this last one, it's go put yourself in a place where you would suffer. Jump off that building. God's not going to allow you to suffer. He's not going to let it happen. He's going to protect you. And all of them are about who is he going to trust in the middle of his suffering. And so the, the devil offers Jesus two shortcuts that go around God's will. First he says, you know, make bread for yourself instead of relying on God. And the second he says, skip the cross and get the glory in kingdoms of the earth now without the cross. Then the third temptation basically says, fine, if you think God is so reliable and you trust him so much, why not test that out? Let's see how trustworthy he is. And all of these bypass pain. You don't have to be hungry. You don't have to suffer the cross to have authority. You can trust God to protect you no matter what happens. You won't let anything happen to you. And the way Jesus responds is he defines himself. You you see the devil each time he's saying, if, 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 if you're the son of God, And Jesus defines himself as the Son of God, as someone who trusts and obeys the Father. That's what it means to be in a right relationship with God the Father. God the Son, in whatever circumstance, the Son trusts and obeys the Father. And Satan is trying to, or the devil or the serpent from Genesis 3, is trying to create this rift in Jesus' relationship with his Father. He wants to put this wedge between them. He wants Jesus to stop trusting in God and trust in something else, or to not see God as Father as fully trustworthy. He wants him to trust in himself to provide. Don't follow God's plan. Test God's faithfulness. And it's like all this is getting him to question, is this really the best way? Is there a better way to do this? Should I be in this suffering? Should I be in this pain? Should I go to that cross? Um, yeah, if God, if he's trustworthy, yeah, then he should protect me in anything. And why would I die? Why would I have to die on a cross? God will protect me. He's trying to get him to see God in a different way of questioning him or uh, turning somewhere else. And the devil's objective in all temptations he gives us is not necessarily, hey, go commit adultery with that person. Hey, go kill that person. Hey, uh, go steal that person's car. Uh, That's not what he presents to Jesus. The temptations are way more subtle than that, and they are who are you going to trust in in this moment, especially in this moment of suffering or pain, or challenge, or hardship. Who are you going to trust in in this moment? He's trying to get us to move our trust, uh, transfer it from God to other things, and to get us to doubt God's trustworthiness. And this is, especially in, in times of suffering, or hardship, and challenge, and pain, what Jesus does here is very countercultural. If you think about our culture today, we try to get away from discomfort and pain, and even seeing people in pain and discomfort, or people who have died, uh, and it's all kind of like, 
hospitalized and sanitized. We don't get close to, to dead people until they're, uh, we're at a funeral. We don't, and there's just all uh, these ways that, I mean, some of the messages the, that people call Christianity is, if you have enough faith, God will give you the good life that you want right now. You have health, you'll have wealth, you'll have uh, you know, prosperity, people will like you. Like If you trust in God, He will get you out of suffering, He'll get you out of hardship, He'll get you out of challenges and out of pain. And Jesus here is saying, no, I'm not going to leave the suffering, I'm not going to leave the pain, I'm actually going to go towards it, I'm going to go to the cross on behalf of these people, and Jesus says, I'm going to trust God in all of it. And that's the, if you go through the whole Bible, that's the, the whole message. And we are most like Jesus when we trust God in suffering, affliction, hardship, pain, and challenges. We're in those moments, and when we don't, when we're trying to just get out of it and focused on how can I get out of this, we're choosing the way of the devil when we don't trust God because he wants us to focus on if God really loved me, if God really cared about me, if I'm really the son or daughter of God, God wouldn't have me going through this. And those are where our thoughts can go. And the, the path of the devil is the path of self-reliance, self-dependence, self-sufficiency, self-justification. And the path of Jesus is self-denial. And we're going to uh, jump to two other incidents quickly in Jesus' life that really connect with this passage. So this is early on in his ministry. He's about 30 years old. He's, about to, he's going public with um, proclaiming the kingdom of God. Uh, but then later on, um, he, there's these two incidents that happen. And Heather read the one for us. The first incident is when Jesus asks his disciples, Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirms that answer and then begins to teach, uh, this is what it means for me to be the Christ. This is what it means for me to be the Messiah. This is what it means for me to be the King that the Old Testament talked about, is I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, and be raised again three days later. And then it seems to Peter that Jesus needs a little lesson on what it means to be the Messiah. So he takes him aside and he rebukes him. And his words are, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Then Jesus, standing in front of the rest of his disciples, says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You might think, I mean, you know, if I told you, like, I think next week I'm going to get in a car crash and suffer you might be tempted to say, why would you ever think that? You know, that surely that's not going to happen to you. And I, not that I think any of you would say this, but you might say, you're a pastor. Why would God, you're serving God's people all the time. Why would God let that happen to you? And, you know, even better than that, you're God's beloved son. Like, surely that will not happen to you. And even when our, uh, the first child we tried to adopt, when that fell through, people said to us, I, can't, I cannot believe that God would let this happen. Like, why would God let that happen? I don't, I don't get that. Why would he let you suffer this much? And we can think that, God, if you, uh, far be it from me to suffer in this way. Like, you are God's son or daughter. God will not let that happen to you. But Jesus has this big reaction. Get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter Satan. He doesn't just say, like, you know, hey, you're kind of acting like the devil now. Get behind me. But he actually says, get behind me, Satan. He recognizes who is actually behind what Peter is saying, and he recognizes it as another temptation from Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You are not thinking on the things of God. You're a hindrance to me. 
And Jesus then proceeds to tell his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And Jesus here lays out God's way that he's following and what is required if other people want to follow him too. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And take up your cross means bear the suffering that God has for your life, especially the suffering that comes from being faithful to God, which is what Jesus was doing. He was being faithful to God. He was persecuted and afflicted and oppressed for it. So the second incident was only hours before Jesus died on the cross. He went out to a grove of olive trees with his closest disciples, and he was sorrowful and troubled, we're told. So he falls in his face in prayer to God, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now the cup refers to the cross, that Jesus is going to drink uh, the cup of God's judgment for sinners in their place. He says, let this cup pass from me. He's looking at it and he's saying, I'm sorrowful, he's troubled, and he sees it before him and he prays, God, could you take this from me? Is there another way? And there's going to be the physical torment of being nailed to this cross by your wrists and in your feet and slowly suffocating because you slowly, eventually can't hold your weight up and to be able to breathe well. And so he sees that coming, and there will be the shame of hanging naked for all to see as a spectacle with people mocking him and ridiculing him. But worst of all will be bearing God's just judgment for all humanity's sin, his righteous anger toward all ungodliness and unrighteousness. And this, that would be the worst of it. And as he sees that physical and that relational suffering, coming, and death, he asks his Heavenly Father, is there another way? But in the end he says, not my will, not my way, but your will. I'm going to do this, what you call me to. And so we see that Jesus knows, these are two other instances where it's like, he sees the path of suffering before him, and in that path of suffering, as he's going down, it says, I'm going to trust God in this, no matter what is coming. And so we might ask, well, why is this relevant to us? None of us are Jesus. None of us are going to a cross for other people's sins. Surely he was Son of God in a special way, uh, and because he always was. So why is this relevant to us? But we have the same enemy that Jesus had, the devil. And it's even worse than that, uh, not just having the same enemy, but this enemy has already succeeded in deceiving us into doubting God's character. And if we go back to the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 3, where we see the serpent, uh, the devil or Satan, coming in the form of a serpent to Adam and Eve, he tempts them with actually three temptations. And he, tell, and he doesn't exactly say what uh, is said here in Luke, but I was really helped by this um, article I bumped across by uh, actually another pastor in the Chicagoland area um, talking about there's this parallel, there's three temptations in both scenes. And uh, interestingly, um, there's two, really only two times in the Bible where uh, a human with an uncorrupted human nature was tempted by the devil. Does that make sense? That once Adam chose to sin in the garden, now we, none of us have a perfect nature anymore. Our human nature is 
corrupted, so that we are sinners both by nature and by choice, is that our natures have been distorted and corrupted. But that's not how God created it. Adam was created with a nature uncorrupted by sin. He had not sinned. Uh, Jesus, too, was born with a nature uncorrupted by sin because he was born of a virgin. He didn't inherit uh, the corrupt nature from Adam uh, because he wasn't born of a man. He was born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. So two times in Scripture where a human being with an uncorrupted human nature was tempted by Satan directly. One is Genesis 3, and one is Luke 4, and the other times that the Gospels record Jesus' temptation. And the first temptation that God, Satan gave to Adam and Eve was, did God say, did God say you can't eat from any of these trees in this garden? Just questioning, bringing God's word into question. And he also tells, Eve says, well, he said that we, uh, we can eat of all the trees except not this one. If we eat of it or even touch it, we'll die. God didn't say they couldn't touch it. He said, don't eat of it. And then Satan says, you will not surely die. What is, what is this? What kind of weird thing is this? You won't surely die. And so the first one's questioning God's word, just like the serpent or Satan questioned God's word with Jesus. And then the second temptation, you will not surely die, is corresponding to Christ's third temptation. Jump off this building. You won't die. God will protect you. Serpent here, you won't die if you eat of this fruit that God said you can't eat of. And then the third temptation in the garden was. You can be like God. God is holding out on you. He doesn't want you to eat from this. Because if you do, you'll know good and evil just like him. And then you'll be like God. And so the, um, this corresponds to Christ's second temptation. When the devil says, you can have all the authority and power. Uh, I'll give it to you, all the kingdoms of the earth. You can have all this authority like God has. All this power like God has. Just bow down to me. And so this temptation in the garden is what happened to the first humans. And this uh, temptation with Jesus is what happens to him as he's bringing us uh, to lead us out of living that way, living in the slavery of those, those lies and the deception and doubt about God. But there's major differences. In the garden, the devil came to confront Adam and Eve. But in Luke 4, Jesus goes out to confront the devil. Filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit leads him out to go confront the devil. I'm going to go confront this enemy that has been the enemy of humanity all you know, throughout human history. Another difference is that the devil confronted Adam and Eve in the garden with food provided all around them. But Jesus goes out and confronts the devil in a wilderness, fasting for 40 days, doesn't have all this food provided around him. Thirdly, the devil confronted Adam and Eve together, but Jesus confronts the devil alone. So what is a test? We're really, a test is anytime we're tempted... That's the devil side of it. God doesn't tempt us. Uh, but on the God side of it, it's a test. And tests reveal what is inside of us. And we're tested in life in moments that require faith. Our faith is tested in moments when faith is required. And then we must ask, who will we trust? And when, it's, when your faith is most required, it's when you're facing suffering or in the middle of suffering, when you're in the wilderness like Brian talked about. And Lent is a time of entering into our own wilderness. It's kind of like we make it a wilderness for ourselves. That's what a lot of people talk about. It. Say you craft a wilderness for yourself. Because Jesus intentionally went into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days. And during that, these temptations, not from inside of him, but from outside of him, came to the surface. And so... In Lent, we can enter into our own wilderness, choosing 
what am I going to give up during this season so I can focus on God more and see those temptations that are in my life or even the temptations that I've given into over the last you know, year or however many months. And Satan uh, came looking for Adam and Eve, but Jesus goes into the wilderness and to confront Satan, the serpent, the devil. And during Lent, we choose a wilderness to confront uh, the devil. And Lent, I kind of like thinking of it as a time of doing an audit of our life uh, to see what temptations we have given into to replace God in our lives. In what ways have we turned from God to rely on something else? In what ways have we doubted God's character, His goodness, His greatness, His love, His mercy, His grace? How have we said yes to the devil's temptations in our life in ways that we don't even realize? His temptation to rely on ourselves instead of God, to avoid denying ourselves and taking up our cross, and to question God's trustworthiness. <coughs> and we go and we meet Him head on. And Jesus said, you can gain the whole world, but lose your soul. And this was the temptation that the devil brought to Jesus. You know, you can have whatever you want, gain the whole world. He realizes, you know, it's kind of like what we see in movies or books, like they sold their soul to the devil. That was really the temptation. Sell it off to me. Come bow to me. You can gain the whole world. Jesus says, well, I'll lose my soul if I do that. It's a, the temptation to avoid suffering. Jesus says we must die, deny ourselves, take up our cross. And our temptation is never die to yourself. Always stand on what you deserve and what is your right to have. And always be asking God to give you everything you deserve. I mean, we never want really to God to give us what we deserve because then we would deserve death. We would deserve hell. And the temptation is you can get what you want with no cost to yourself. So some ways that I uh, you know, mentioned some of this before. This is maybe a different way to think of it. As we're going to Lent, we're halfway through and perhaps at the beginning you decide, this is something I'm going to give up for Lent. Or maybe you were, never got around to it, or maybe you weren't here for one of those messages. Um, it's never too late to start. And something we can consider giving up is, what do you use as a filler? If that makes sense. If you're sitting in the doctor's office, oh, your doctor will be with you in a couple minutes. What do you fill that time with? Or going to the bathroom, that'd be kind of weird. Let's not think about that one. Uh, let's, if you're, uh, I don't know, waiting for somebody to call you, oh, I'll just you know, do this for a couple minutes. Um, you know, I mean, usually we bust out the phone, right, and do stuff, scroll through things, and or we, uh, I don't know, maybe get stuff done, or whatever it is, turn on the TV. What do you use as a filler? And Lent is a time where you can say, you know what, I'm not going to go to that filler anymore. And in, I'm going to give that up so that in this time, I'm going to take on my phone and so instead of looking at social media, I'm going to read the Bible. Or I'm going to sit here and pray. Or I'm going to ask God, you know, show me the ways that uh, you've loved me this week. What can I be thankful for? You're just going to tick off. These are things, thank you God for this, thank you God for that. And use that to fill those times instead. And the second question is, what are you always trying to get to? What are you always trying to get to? Are you always trying to get to the end of the day so you can watch TV? Are we trying to get to the end of the week so you can have a you know, time off or go to the lake house or something? I don't know if any of you have a lake house, but are you always trying to get to the end of the to-do list, trying to get that to-do list complete? Are you always trying to get to a place where you have enough money? Are you always trying to get to having the car paid off to get that promotion, to get that person's approval, to get the next pair of pants or the right pair of shoes? What are you always trying to get to, the thing you're always kind of striving for and fighting for? And then answer the question, well, what would that give you if you got it? 
And probably some of the words you would come up with are joy, I feel peace, or I feel loved, or I feel significant, I feel secure, I feel satisfied. And in Lent we say, I'm going to put that aside. It might be a good thing to even pursue a promotion or getting the car paid off. But in Lent it's saying, I've really put my hope, my faith, my love in that, and I'm going to turn from that during Lent and put it in God. And we can ask ourselves, if what we're doing is forming us into the type of person God has called us to be, or and that we want to be, is what you're doing, what you're filling your time with, of what you're striving toward, is that forming you into the type of person you want to be, into the type of person God has called you to be? And typically the best things for us take more intentionality, energy, and effort. And the challenge is that we often take the path of least resistance. It's way easier for me to take out my phone and do, you know, basically do nothing on it than to say, okay, I'm going to pray now, or I'm going to read my Bible now. And that's the path of least resistance is what we often take. And the good news that Lent leads us towards is not that, okay, God, I've proved myself. I, during Lent, I gave up all these bad things, and now I'm good enough. The point of Lent is, as I said, to lead us to the cross. And Jesus succeeded in all the ways that we fail, so that by his life and his death, we would never be separated from God, even though we are constantly unfaithful to God, even though we are constantly turning to other things. But Jesus was completely faithful, so that we can rest assured, when we are unfaithful to God, we can be forgiven. We stand on this foundation of grace with God. He does not give us what we deserve. Psalm 103 says that he does not... uh, Treat us, he does not treat us according to our sins. And that's just that's the best news in the world. That doesn't isn't just before I was a Christian, he didn't treat me according to my sins, and I got forgiven. And now I'm a Christian, I need to get my act together. No, he never treats us according to our sins. Jesus was faithful in all the ways that we're unfaithful, so that our relationship with God isn't broken by our our unfaithfulness. And this is what Lent is. It leads us to the foot of the cross, thinking about those ways we've turned from God, thinking about those things that we've uh, replaced God with. And then we don't put them on our backs and say, oh, I just got to get this off. We take them, we carry them up to the foot of the cross, and we lay them there, and we say, Jesus, you paid for all this. And I'm just asking, would you please forgive me again? I know your death is sufficient for this. You don't treat me according to what I deserve, because... You've died on this cross for me, and so I don't have to get up on it and die for my own sins. We do need to die to ourselves, but we don't need to die for our sins. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Let's pray. God, you are more gracious than we can imagine. You do not treat us according to our sins. You treat us according to your love. A love we could never earn, we never deserve. And so as you help us again as we approach Good Friday and Easter, to feel the freedom and the relief of our sins coming off our backs that we do not have to carry them, that we give them to your Son, and they are nailed to the cross with him. So Lord, fill us with gratitude, and in doing that, would you fill us with the love, joy, and peace that only come from you. Son's name we pray. Amen.